The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Our scripture reading for today is actually shorter than the whole passage we're looking at. So we're in the, this, um, we could use the word obscure, but I don't like that word because that implies that it's not needed, it's not necessary, but that's, we need all of these words, right? But this is a lesser known part of Exodus, and it's got a lot of details. And so we don't have time to read all of what we're covering today. I'm just going to sort of refer to it. We'll do like a Passover, pass over it, just talking about what's in these sections. But it might be good for you to have a Bible open so you can sort of flip through and see, okay, here's, he's talking about this now, he's talking about this. But for our actual scripture reading before I get started, I'm just going to read two fairly short passages First, in Exodus chapter 20. Would you mind standing with me as we read God's word? So I'll start in Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's flip over to chapter 25, and I'll read verses 8 and 9. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Lord, we thank you for your holy words And we ask that now in this time together, you would apply them to our hearts. You would help us to see all that's happening in these pages about your tabernacle. And that we would be in wonder at your majesty. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So today's sermon is a hodgepodge of parts of five different chapters. And, you know, when I thought about the best way to take in this last section of Exodus... Uh, where we're, we're going to think about the God who stays. Uh, there's no, in, in my view, for our congregation, there wasn't a real clean way to break it apart. Uh, maybe doing it all at once would have been optimal, but we don't really have, you know, five to ten hours to, to think about that right now. So what I did was we're going to take apart the part, that the section that deals with the instructions for constructing the tabernacle. We're going to look at that this week. Then in another week, we'll look at the instructions that are given regarding priests. And then another week still, we'll look at the people's response in giving for the tabernacle and how they obeyed in completing the work. Now, it might sound dull to talk about a fancy tent and its furniture. And it's likely that many of us, if we've read the book of Exodus at all, maybe we've just kind of flipped quickly through these pages, uh, you know, when we get to these chapters of construction blueprints. We're not going to breeze past them today, and I hope that the result is that you won't be as tempted to breeze past them in the future. Why? Because without these concepts, 
you can't really understand how the New Testament refers back to them. You won't understand what John chapter 1 is saying when it tells us that the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. You also won't understand what Jesus means when he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You won't understand 1 Corinthians when it says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You won't understand what Ephesians and 1 Peter and Revelation mean in saying that we're being built up together into a spiritual house. So you won't fully grasp what our future together holds and where we're going as humanity or where we've come from. And that would mean that you won't have as much joy as you could have had from seeing the perfection of God's plans in these pages. So if you don't have a Bible today, you know, we've got extra Bibles on the back um, cabinet. Feel free to get up, grab one. If you didn't get coffee during the break, maybe refill now so that you're all set, ready to focus on uh, all these details. And, uh, you know, some of, some of you have thought about Tabernacle before. It's not entirely new, right? Uh, last year we did a sermon series through Hebrews, and there's a lot in those later chapters that deal with the Tabernacle. Also, not too long ago we had a life group that thought about the church as God's temple. So we'll revisit some of that. But I just want to stress that this material couldn't be more relevant to our lives because what we have in the Tabernacle is a picture gallery, or kind of like a, a visual aid of spiritual realities. So it's a model through which we can see past this temporal realm into what God is doing. So in the tabernacle, we can see the good news of Jesus Christ foreshadowed 15 centuries before he came. Or as one author put it, the tabernacle is a map showing us the way home. So the verses that we read earlier are just the tip of the iceberg. Let me fly over the rest of the material. Um, chapter 25, verse 8. We're told that a, a, the construction of the tabernacle is commanded. Actually, the word sanctuary is used there. You may have heard that when I read it. Uh, the English word sanctuary, what do we think of? We think of a place that's sort of a safe haven. You, you run to the sanctuary. That's not actually the original meaning of the word. Sanct is from Latin. Sanctus, meaning holy. So a sanctuary was a place where the holy was housed. And God announces his purpose in this verse, that I may dwell in their midst. That's what he wants to do in this tabernacle. But in order for that to be possible, verse 9 says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of this tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And we'll find out later why that's the case. So then 25, verse 10 through 40 plus 27, 1 through 8, plus two parts of chapter 30, all describe pieces of furniture that need to be made for the tabernacle. Then chapter 26, plus chapter 27, verses 9 through 19, describe the structure and the material from which the frame of this ornate tent needed to be made, including some very elaborate curtains that would be used to separate the three sections of the tabernacle from each other. And then in chapter 27 and 30, we also find some other instructions for making lamp oil and anointing oil and incense that would be used inside the tabernacle. So if that feels mixed up, here's what was going on. Uh, the, when this was written... What, what it's like is a tour of the tabernacle that starts in the most holy place and then kind of circles out and ends up in the more common and accessible parts of the tabernacle. 
I'm not taking it in that order this morning, and I hope you'll see why in a minute. I'm organizing it more thematically. Let me pause here and say, if you already feel like we're trying to drink out of a fire hydrant, I understand. Let me start with some pictures that will help us to imagine what's being described. First, do you see this big courtyard? This is the tabernacle. That open space is where anyone could come in and worship. But then there's the holy place. That's what's inside that tent, and here's a close-up of it. So this holy place, that's where only the priests could go. And you can see that within that tent portion, there's a larger room, and then there's a cube-shaped inner chamber, which is called the Holy of Holies. And it's there that only the high priest could go, and he could do that only once a year. But what's it all about? Well, in the words of chapter 20, verse 24, I will come to you and bless you. That's what the tabernacle is for. It's the place of God's blessing. God said he's not going to stay distant from his people. He started to meet with them at altars that were set up by the patriarchs even before the Exodus. And then now after the Exodus, he's giving plans for a tabernacle that will make that even more fuller in its expression. So this is the place of God's blessing. We may be able to see how a tabernacle would have blessed the ancient people of God. It would have um, made them feel that he is near to them, dwelling among them. But what about us today? Does studying the tabernacle hold any blessing for us? Yes, we're going to see that the tabernacle is first, it's a place to remind us of home. This is our outline for today. The tabernacle is a place to remind us of home. Second, the tabernacle is a place to show us the way home. And thirdly, it's a place that only God can build and open. The tabernacle represents a place that only God could build and open. So what do I mean when I say that the tabernacle is a place to remind us of our home? You may say, well, I live in Joliet, or I live in Plainfield, or Oswego. I'm not really looking for a home. Sure, but then there are times when you don't even feel at home in your home. Maybe there are times when you don't even feel at home within your own self. Maybe there's relational tension. Maybe there's insecurities. Maybe there's a realization that as much as you like your home, is it really yours? You still have to pay rent or a mortgage or taxes. Maybe even if you love your home and feel like, oh, I could just hide out there forever, there are still times when you feel like, yeah, but is that really a meaningful life? Is this really all there is? I feel like I was meant to belong to so much more. And then there are random times when you suddenly get a glimpse of that deeper belonging that you crave. Maybe it's on a vacation and there's like a a, a beach or some forest or some quaint village and it stirs up part of you that you didn't even know existed. Or maybe it's a gathering with friends, old friends, new friends, maybe at a coffee house or at a pub or in someone's backyard. And then the level of comfort and the depth of understanding just completely sets you at ease and it makes you wish that that would never end. So these are tastes of home. These are hints that we were made to belong to a realm that's marked by a deeper peace and joy than we have ever been able to secure for ourselves. So when I say that the tabernacle is a place to remind us of home, we're speaking of humanity's first home, Eden. The tabernacle teaches us to look back to the very beginning of where humanity in original innocence dwelled together with God. 
And we know that we're meant to think this way because of the parallel between the accounts of the creation of the world and this account of creation of the tabernacle. So we've got a slide here to just show some similarities in the way that it's described linguistically between those two accounts. It's, it's like Moses is trying to structure it in a parallel manner so we can see this is another creation that's happening. And also in these chapters, Exodus 25 to 31, there are seven speeches about constructing the tabernacle that all begin with the Lord said to Moses. Just like in Genesis, there are seven words that the Lord gives for creation. So it seems that the process is laid out in seven steps, just like we see in Genesis 1 and 2. And also, both of these creation cycles end with a discussion of the Sabbath. You can see that at the end of Exodus 31. So all this seems to be set up for our viewing the tabernacle like the start of a new creation just like Eden was the start of the old. Also, we know that Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden to the east, and the way back was guarded by angels called cherubim. Well, Exodus 27, verse 13, tells us that the front of the tabernacle was to the east, and we'll see that stitchings and moldings of cherubim figures were prominent in the design of the tabernacle. And one way that the tabernacle reminds us of paradise is in its beauty. We read in Genesis 2 that Eden was a place of lush vegetation and precious metals, specifically gold and onyx and bdellium. And it's striking that among the requirements for the tabernacle that are given in, in 25 are gold and onyx. Now, regarding the lush vegetation in Solomon's temple, which was later a later um, model, it was modeled on the tabernacle, but it was fuller and it was more permanent and glorious in Jerusalem. In that structure, there was gold work that depicted palms and open flowers and gourds and pomegranates. But even here in this first tabernacle, we see some arboreal imagery. We see this lampstand, the golden lampstand in the holy place. And it's made of pure gold, but it's also made, can we show that, that lampstand? It's made to look like a flowering almond tree. It had seven flames in the place of blossoms that had to be tended with oil regularly, and this lamp had to always be kept lit. So if this is a Garden of Eden-themed space, then this lamp stand stands for the tree of life. It speaks both to the fruitfulness that we find in life with God, also the illumination and the guidance that flows to us in his presence. It makes us remember also that the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now across from the golden lampstand in the holy place was the showbread table. There were 12 loaves of bread on this golden table and those loaves were replaced regularly. They represented the 12 tribes of Israel. This was called the bread of the presence the implication being that uh, when we dwell in the presence of God, he sustains and he nourishes all of his people abundantly. It also means that he wants to share table fellowship with us. We were created to feast in his presence like a warm holiday meal. This ties in with manna in Exodus 16. It ties in with Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me. It fits in with Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good 
Incline your ear, come to me, and hear that your soul may live. So God wants to satisfy us. And that's why we have to find our way home to his presence. The third major piece of furniture in the holy place was behind the second curtain in the Holy of Holies. It was the Ark of the Covenant. And this was a golden box. It was a little less than four feet long and a little more than two feet wide. And in this box were placed the the tablets of the testimony, those two copies of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses. And the picture that we get is God is a king sitting on his throne and his righteous decrees are kept at his feet. This was um, the custom in the ancient Near East. So that he would have the testimony of his laws before him and he would judge righteously according to them. And also throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this ark is referred to as the footstool of God. So the picture is that God is on his throne in heaven. He's outside of our world. But in this bridge space, his throne room extends down into this, this, to this actual piece of furniture as his footstool, the footstool of God's physical presence. And chapters 25 and 30 say that this right here is the place where Moses is to meet with God and hear his instructions. So the Ark of the Covenant, serving as an extension of God's throne, held the tablets of the testimony within. This is also a great reminder of Eden, because Eden was a realm where God's words gave freedom and joy until that dark day when his words were twisted and rejected. So what we're seeing in the tabernacle is like a little microcosm of what the world was designed to be. It's meant to be a realm where God's glory beautifies and causes his people to flourish. A realm where he is seen rightly, where his words and his presence sustain us. A realm where we see and we understand. A realm where we're welcomed to the table and we belong. Now one thought that we should have when we see the beauty and the deep meaning throughout this tabernacle, we should have feelings of joyful devotion to him. And you see that a lot in the Psalms. Have you ever noticed how many Psalms mention the temple? Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for the joy, for joy to the living God. And Psalm 65 is similar. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. Are we able to sincerely celebrate God's temple, the church, like that? I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the spirit-filled people with whom we're bound together by God's good design in this local congregation. Are you continually amazed at the beauty of what he's creating in our midst? Does it fill you with wonder and a sense of flourishing when we're together? If not, maybe we need to make sure we're understanding his sanctuary rightly and not just skipping over what he says his church should look like and what his church should be made of so that we can go ahead with a design of our own making. Because there is joy to be found in his presence, in his temple. And another takeaway that we get from the sheer beauty of the tabernacle and the costly materials that were used is it's good to incorporate beauty and expense into our worship of God. He is the beautiful one, so why wouldn't everything we use to worship him be beautiful? Why wouldn't we give him our absolute best? And, and this isn't to say that rich churches or churches with professional musicians or artists are somehow more pleasing to God. No, God, he's the God of 
churches that meet in mud huts or uh, secret churches that have to meet in cockroach-infested cellars. He's God there just as much as he is God in the cathedral. And sometimes those who appear to be putting the most into their worship, their hearts might be far from him. But the point is that God is pleased with the best that we have. That's what he finds beautiful. Don't give him your second best. Don't be lazy or unengaged in what you offer him through your worship. Because as we all bring our best, then our church as the New Testament tabernacle of Christ will start to feel like a return to Eden, even though it's only a teaser. But the tabernacle doesn't just leave us pining for paradise lost, like some sort of museum where you can go and think about the past, but you can't really touch it or can't really live it out. No, the tabernacle looks backward and forward. So it offers to show us the way home. That's our second point. The tabernacle is a place to show us the way home. So if the presence of God is what made paradise paradise, and if the presence of God is truly in this tabernacle, why couldn't the Israelites just go into that holy of holies and recreate the experience that humans originally had where they're walking with God in the garden? Because that relationship was broken. And if you remember Exodus 19, the Lord made it very clear that drawing near was not an option. He descended in fire, and also there was black smoke as thick as in a brick kiln. And that was actually so that the people wouldn't be harmed by the glory of God. So that same effect is reproduced here in the tabernacle. The incense altar is right in front of the curtain to the Holy of Holies. And there are incense that would be burned on that altar. I think we have a picture of the incense altar the incense would send up smoke before the curtain of the holiest place, reminding them of of that smoke on Mount Sinai. So there are barriers in place. There are caution signs. There are locked doors for our own safety. Chapter 26 starts by saying, You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. So these are the curtains that separated the most holy place from the holy place and all of that structure from the outer court. And Jewish writers in Jesus' time were explaining the, they were explaining the temple to um, the Greek-speaking world. They wrote of how in those curtains, the scarlet color was like the, the, the fire of lightning or the sun. And they described the blue as like the blue of sky and the purple resembling the dark clouds or the night sky. So their understanding was that this curtain was, it was representing a a spatial separation from God. It was um, representing a, a dimensional reality. So when we see the sky, even when there's glory streaking across it, like from lightning or from the sun, we know that's not God. We know that we could travel in a spaceship for many lifetimes and never get to God. He's not on the curtain. Heaven isn't a planet or a star system. The curtain of our physical reality would have to be torn open in order for us to have access to where God dwells. And there are cherubim stitched on the curtain. And these aren't cute little baby angels like what you see in European paintings. These These also aren't messenger angels like what you see at different parts of scripture bringing news. These are warrior angels, or maybe more accurately, they're bouncer angels. Remember in uh, Genesis chapter 3, the cherubim outside the Garden of Eden, they had a flaming sword 
that, that went in every direction, turned uh, in every direction to guard the tree of life. So the presence of cherubim on these curtains reminds us that in addition to the physical barriers, there are spiritual barriers between us and the holy presence of God. And the zones that these curtains separate actually reflected perfectly the zones of access that we saw on Mount Sinai. Remember how in chapter 19 and also in 23, we saw this three-part segmentation of the mountain on which God had descended. So the people could come up to the edge of the mountain, but they couldn't go any further on pain of death. But then the elders and the, the priests, they could go further. They could go into the presence of God similar to um, the first holy place, and they could they actually ate in the presence of God, similar to how the the table of the bread of presence is found within that holy place. But then on the mountain, only Moses could go further up into uh, God's very presence. And similarly, here in the tabernacle, only the high priest could go into the holy of holies. So the tabernacle was like a continuation of Mount Sinai. It was like they were taking that experience of God on Mount Sinai. They were making it portable. That's what God designed for them. Well, how does that show the way back home? See, the whole structure of the tabernacle was organized in a way that went from common to exquisite, that went from common to holy. Um, the intricacy of the work grew more skilled as you went further in. And even the, the metals that were used, like the courtyard had only bronze articles and tools in it. And then the frames and the bases supporting the curtains, they were made of silver. And then the articles within the holy place were made of gold. So you, you want to go further. You want to see more. But how do you get there? The first thing one would see when you walked into the courtyard of the tabernacle, right there in front of you, was the bronze altar. And we've got an illustration of that. So chapter 27 says, You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns on it for its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels, and basins, and forks, and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze, you shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze. So it was on this bronze altar that everyday sacrifices would be made. The point was clear. Access to the holy, access to paradise is blocked by the need for blood sacrifice. But the bummer is that that sacrifice had to be repeated constantly. There was a grate under the altar and there were shovels and fire pans because the ashes had to be dumped and space prepared for another sacrifice. And we'll get to this more next week, but another barrier to overcome was that not just everyone could make the sacrifices. Priests were chosen and they needed to be pure. So there was this giant bronze basin in the courtyard for washing and the priests needed to have special clothes and they needed to have special anointing oil and incense. But of course, these were just outward symbols of the type of inner purity that's required in the presence of God. That's the kicker, though. These priests, they weren't pure in their conduct. They were sinners, just like you and me. So if the common people weren't pure, and these who were named as advocates for them weren't pure, what hope is there, really, of getting through to establish lasting closeness and safety with God? Well, let's talk about something called the mercy seat. 
We already talked about the Ark of the Covenant, God's footstool for his throne from heaven. Well, the lid to that golden box with these golden figures of cherubim adorning it with their wings, that was called the mercy seat. And its Hebrew name is derived from the word to cover. It seems to be a play on words. So on the one hand, the lid to the ark was a covering, right? It just it covered over the chest. It covered over the tablets that were inside. But in another sense, it also functions as a covering. It's, it's a double meaning because one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on this mercy seat on behalf of the sins of the people. And, and the, as the mercy seat received that blood, as the blood of a substitute, then the ways in which the people had violated those commandments that were held within the chest, those were covered over by sacrificial blood, at least for a year. And even then, were they really covered over? They were covered over in a sense that allowed... God's presence to remain at the tabernacle, but they weren't covered over in a way that could actually erase the barriers and usher the people back to Eden. Because the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never, in an ultimate sense, take away sin. Neither the everyday sacrifices nor the annual Day of Atonement sacrifices, neither could be the final solution. But still, the tabernacle showed a path. It showed the atonement that was needed, it showed that the solution would have to involve the substitution of an innocent life in the place of the guilty. So the road was kind of traced out in the tabernacle, but it would have to be filled in with something fuller. So the tabernacle points like a map to the holiness that must be entered into. It points to the transcendence that has to somehow be crossed to get us back home. And it shows us what that path of atonement generally looks like. Now, if you were lost in a complex maze and uh, you didn't know where to go, everywhere there seemed to be dead ends, and then someone gave you like a model of that same maze that you could hold in your hands and kind of turn it over and examine it, would that be helpful? Yeah, it would be. Um, You could see it at the very least like, okay, whoa, my situation is way more complex than I thought. And I can't just go this direction or that direction and and get out. Um, Yeah, and that's kind of what we see with the tabernacle. It serves us by showing us the complexity of our situation. Even though in one sense, God is just in the next room. In another sense, he might as well be worlds away. So ultimately, the tabernacle shows us that our home is a place that only God can build and open to us. We can't solve it for ourselves. The place we need to get to is a place that only God can build and open. And we had a hint that this was the case back in chapter 20, verse 25. I'm thankful for John's comments earlier. God says, if you make an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And this introduces a theme for us that's going to, Across all of scripture that our building of a house of worship for God is not ultimately our work. It's his. Deuteronomy and Joshua keep talking about uncut stones. And then in 1 Kings, when Solomon is building the temple, we read that when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. 
And then in Daniel and in Isaiah, we hear this prophetic language about a stone cut by no human hand and also a precious chosen cornerstone. And both of those are tied together in the gospels in the person of Jesus. He is the cornerstone of the temple cut by no human hand. And in Mark, Jesus' accusers repeat that he had said he would build another temple not made with hands. Acts, 2 Corinthians, Hebrews, all repeat this language that the structure God really wants to dwell in is not built by human hands. So what? Well, even in Exodus, we have here hints that this tabernacle and then later the temple are only maps to the solution. They could never be portals to our true home. Solomon knew this. Second Chronicles 6, he says, But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. And the apostle Paul knew this. He said to the Athenians in Acts 17 that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. So the tabernacle's true function is like this picture puzzle that we ourselves are given instructions to build. But the purpose of it, it's meant to highlight one missing piece that would then solve the larger puzzle of our whole existence. And the answer for that, only God could build But by understanding the meaning of the tabernacle, we would recognize the way back home when it was open to us. And of course, that way is not an it, but that way is a he. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus himself stood up in the temple and declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is the fulfillment of the tree of life lampstand. Jesus himself said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. He fed multitudes with miraculous loaves and fish as a sign that he alone gives the abundance that our souls crave. He is the fulfillment of the bread of presence. The reason that we're told multiple times that Moses had to make everything according to the pattern shown him on the mountain is that this tabernacle was a replica of a heavenly reality that would be fulfilled in Jesus. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So as both the great high priest and also as the Lamb of God, Jesus presented the sacrificial offering of his own blood as a covering for all of his people for all of time. And as he did that on the cross, the thick ornate curtain described in Exodus 26, the one that separated humanity from God and that was guarded by images of cherubim on it, we read in Matthew chapter 27, that as Jesus died, that curtain was torn, supernaturally torn open from top to bottom. Now we know from the Bible that the curtain in the temple was 30 feet high. And Jewish tradition says that that curtain was about four inches thick. And scripture tells us that the curtain was simply ripped open in the middle when Jesus died. Why? Because God wanted to tell us that the way was now open. 
And in God's providence, the Jewish temple would be destroyed by the Romans 40 years later. So sacrifices for sin never have been, never needed to be reestablished. And we no longer need the Ark of the Covenant because right now King Jesus sits on his throne with the whole earth as his footstool and the testimony of his covenant is going out to all nations as we make disciples, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. But that doesn't mean that these concepts about tabernacle are irrelevant to us because even now they help us to think rightly about who we are in Christ. Ephesians says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and members of the household of God, built on the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So we see God's light and his sustenance and his purity and his peace and his beauty playing out in our midst. And that wonderful reality of God with us that shouldn't lead us to complacency, but rather, Jesus says to hurting and tempted Christians in Revelation 3, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven. And this is where everything is headed. At the end of the Bible, we see that God's temple isn't forever this, this abstract thing among his people, but will once again be very concrete, more real than the tabernacle, more lasting, more satisfying than the Garden of Eden. It's a garden city temple that will be the forever merger of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation says, I heard the, a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with humanity. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the dimensions of this city are given, and it's a cube. Implication being that the Holy of Holies has broken out and enveloped all of this new creation. John continues, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. For the glory of God gives it light. He goes on to speak about the tree of life, which was for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. So what we've seen then is that in Jesus, this set of images given to us in the tabernacle instructions they really do open up into a portal to our true and lasting home. So here's the progression that we see in Scripture. Let's just see this um, slide of, that shows a progression. So what started in the Garden of Eden, God dwelling with humanity in intimacy, that was broken. Humanity was sent into exile. But God didn't give up on us then. He started a rescue plan and he started to meet with his people again, first at altars that the patriarch, patriarchs built. He met with them there. He blessed them there, just like he says in this text. Think of uh, Jacob at Bethel and uh, the vision he was given in that place. Well, then here in the instructions for the tabernacle, we see the worship of God codified even more and more images given us to understand who he is and what he's doing and the way back to him. 
that is made even more grand and elaborate in the construction of Solomon's temple. Well, the people did not keep covenant with God, and so they were exiled again, just like we were all exiled from the Garden of Eden. And so Solomon's temple was destroyed. But when the people were gathered back to the land, a second temple was built. And it's that temple that was still in existence when Jesus came. Jesus stood in that temple and said, no, actually, I am the temple. All of these realities that we've been talking about are fulfilled in him. And after his death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, we're told that the temple is, includes those who are in Jesus, who are found in Jesus by grace through faith. We are now together the temple of God. But this is kind of like a placeholder because it's going to go physical again and this temple reality is going to envelop all of the new creation. So that's the progression that we see in scripture. You can see that these tabernacle temple concepts are very, very important for everything that Jesus came to do. God gave the tabernacle as a picture of the new home that he's preparing for his people in Jesus. And in the end, when we think about the tabernacle, the takeaway is actually pretty simple. Treasure Jesus and stand amazed at the wisdom of God. Because he revealed all of this from long ages past. He revealed it so that we would remember our true home with him. He revealed it so that we would, we would see a way home. We would understand what it would take to get us there. And he revealed this so that we would remember only God himself could provide a sufficient sacrifice and raise up a worthy mediator and rip open that curtain and welcome us back to his presence. Now, because the tabernacle was a tent that moved along with the people of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, you can know that these realities are available to you as well in your wanderings in this wilderness east of Eden. Jesus and his church are a home for displaced persons who have no other place to belong and no other place that they want to belong. So draw near and gaze in wonder at the beauty of his tabernacle. Find the source of nourishment and light and dare to look upon the king himself because the way has been opened. Lord, these are really abstract truths, some of them. And there's a lot of details that can be hard to get our minds around. We thank you for the glimpse we've had this morning. And I ask that you would only make it more real to us in the days and months and years to follow. Show us this imagery as it pops up throughout your word and use it to make us thankful that you have created a way for the unholy to be reunited with the holy. Lord, we delight in your presence. We want to know you more. We can't wait until that day when the holy of holies envelops all of existence and we live in your presence forever. Amen.